Hello and welcome to Psych Attack. I'm Dr. Jasmine B. MacDonald. In this episode, Dr. Rachel Fox and I share some tips and tricks for publishing in psychology that will be especially useful for listeners new to publishing. I hope you're going well and have settled in with a warm cup of tea. Rachel, welcome back to Psych Attack, round two. Thank you for having me. This time around, we're going to talk about tips and tricks for publishing in psychology, which is kind of fun because last time we kind of poo-pooed publishing in psychology. <laughs> Felt a bit negative by the end. <laughs> in the last episode when we caught up, we were talking about critical aspects or taking a critical lens to publishing in psychology. And we looked at, you know, why do people publish in psychology how quality is thought about in psychological research and psych publishing, the kinds of journals that exist and how they're ranked and also certain groups that can be excluded or disadvantaged through mainstream publishing processes. Today, we're going to take a different focus and think about if you are publishing or you're intending to publish, what are some tips and tricks? That might be a good segue, Rachel, for you to tell the listeners a little bit about yourself in context for what we're going to discuss. Yeah, sure. I'm a senior lecturer in the School of Psychology at Charles Sturt University, and I live in Wagga Wagga, New South Wales, and that's about five hours inland from Sydney. And my research and work is mostly around community psychology and critical psychology, and I, I do exclusively sort of qualitative research. I am also the editor of the, or one of two editors, actually, I should say this year, of the Australian Community Psychologist. And that's a journal that comes under the Australian Psychological Society. It's a much smaller journal. I'm also in the committee of the college as well, College of Community Psychology. In the previous episode that we did together, when we took that critical focus on publishing, there is a nice introduction to the episode all about Rachel and Rachel's research and kind of the role of uh, being an editor for a journal. So there's a lot of really great context and interesting stuff there. I highly recommend going back and having a listen to that. So I'm thinking here, our first point, finding a journal. I feel like you want to find a journal before you finish writing a paper. It's not a great idea to have a finished paper and then go look for a journal because a lot of the time you actually need to tailor it quite a lot to the journal that you're writing for, don't you think? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Otherwise, it's a lot of heartache <laughs> towards the yeah. end. Well, yeah, because then you look at the scope or whatever and find out that actually you need something different. And there's so many different things that you tailor an article to a journal. So so many different ways in which you tailor it. If it's an Australian journal, you know you're writing and if you're doing Australian research, there's lots of things you don't have to explain. But if it's an international journal or a European journal or an American journal, you've actually got to put lots of context in about Australian policy or something that explains to an international audience. So figuring out the audience of that journal. If that journal, for example, you've done qualitative research and that journal doesn't often have qualitative research you've got to quite carefully explain what you did or if it's like a discursive journal and then you know you can get real complex into discursive theory so lots of subtle ways in which you tailor an article to a journal so you probably will have done the research or whatever it is you're writing about you'll have done lots of work on it but it's probably a good idea to find a journal before you finish an article I was thinking about that because it really depends on who's writing the article 
But if you've done some research and now you want to produce some results and show people what you've produced, you probably did a literature search to find out what else is out there. And you're also thinking about having an introduction to that piece of research that explains what else is out there. And we'll probably get into that somewhere about how you write. And that's quite a conventional article that has research in it. That's not what everybody is doing. But most people who are writing a manuscript have read lots of existing literature. And the reason I say that is that you are already reading journals and there are some that you'll admire and there are some articles that you'll admire and some that you think are good and some that you think are close to your work. And there might be more than one article you've read from the same journal. And I always think that's a good direction to think, where am I reading? Which journals am I reading in? These days, that's not that obvious. When I was like undergrad, we'd literally be stood in the library looking at a paper copy of a journal. Like it was obvious that you were looking at the same journal, but sometimes you just filing, you know, firing through different articles and you don't realise that you've been looking at the same journal. Mm. But there will be a group of journals that you spend more time in. Those might be your space. Now, there's also a couple of search engines that are really handy. If you aren't too sure, particularly if you think what you're writing is a bit unusual and you don't feel like there's an obvious home for it, this really varies because you might be in a discipline or a sub-discipline that really just has this group of journals. You know you're absolutely going to write for them. You've been thinking about these journals for a while. Uh, you know what their audience is. But sometimes you really aren't sure because maybe it's kind of a in-between disciplines article or it's a bit peripheral or, you know. Uh, so a lot of your work, I think, often has that. Yeah. You're bridging several disciplines. So one of them is there's a Clarivate database and then there's one called jane.biosemantics but those are both just a website that you can go to and you can put keywords in and find a list of journals so those are also really useful and I think those are great they've just emerged in recent years and that makes it easier so you can with the Clarivate one you can actually match a manuscript so there's a on that main page there's a bunch of things you can use search terms but you can also click match manuscript and um, yeah, as I said, you can put things in like your keywords, the main topics that you're doing, and it'll give you a list of journals. And that's quite handy because it might be things that you hadn't heard of before or didn't realize existed. How does that work? Is it like based off articles, similar articles that cite that paper or similar search terms? Or So it's a particular group of journals. So we talked last time about the ranked journals. So it's Clarivate, so it's Web of Science. And that's yeah. the database of the journals which have made it onto a ranking and they actually own that database. So it's all those journals. If I click on match manuscripts, oh I have to create an account. <laughs> we usually log in through our institutions, don't we? So I can't look at it right now, but I have used it before and I've used the Jane Biosemantics one as well, which I think that one is a free piece of software that was created. Oh, well, that one's great because you can insert your title of your article or you can insert your whole abstract. And it just looks for everything from PubMed. Mm. And that one actually says on the front that you just still have to be aware of any predatory journals that it might have picked up. Yeah, um, okay. yeah. so that will just give you a list of journals that you might not have thought of before. Yeah. Mm. 
So you really want to find a journal that you think your article will fit in. Some of that relates to methodology. Some of it relates to topic. Some of it relates to kind of geography. If it's a very niche Nordic journal, it might be hard to get Australian research into. Some of the US journals are very difficult to get into if you're not in the US. So the next thing I do if I'm selecting a journal if I've had a, I've got some kind of list and I've got some ideas or I've actually thought of some is go to them. And actually, the first thing I do is a lot of journals, most of them, you can search the journal itself. And I put in keywords in relation to my methodology and also my topic to see whether that journal has previously published similar articles. And if any of your methodology is a bit niche and that journal has never published it, that's a bit of a red flag, I suppose. That's one of my sort of red flags of like that journal might want nothing to do with me. Mm. <laughs> Topic wise as well. So if I'm finding that journal has published similar work and then the other important thing to note about that is that that search will give you stuff from however old that journal is and for however long they have a database. You really want to see that they were publishing things like that in recent years because the culture of a journal can change. So 10 years ago, they might have been publishing qualitative research and now they are not. So if you see loads of it, but actually none of it in the last five years, that can also be an issue. The final thing I think people should feel they can do is to ask the journal, is to send them a description of what they're writing. Is this something that that journal would accept? Oh, the other thing I missed, of course, is go look at their scope go read what they say they accept. Excellent. Yes. Yeah. We want to point to is to check very, very carefully scope and Mm. formatting requirements. So let's put a pin in that because I want to come back to two things. The Mm. first one is where you were saying around, you should feel okay to contact the journal. It's really Mm. interesting how many people don't do this. And Mm. I often share, it's usually with masters or honours candidates that I've supervised or people who maybe haven't published as much like early career. And Mm. I'll always encourage them to reach out. And Mm. people think that they're not allowed to do it or they'll get a response back that is really brief and says something like the scope of what we accept is on the website or we can't comment pre-submission. If you get that response they're not that interested in your work. (laughs) I've not been an editor of a journal, but I have always used this strategy of contacting an editor beforehand and just saying, hey, this is the piece of work I have and I think it's well suited to your journal. Here's maybe why I'm not quite sure because it Mm. might be niche in methods. And the times when review has been really straightforward is when an editor has gotten back to me relatively quickly and said, please go ahead and submit. That is of interest to us. And the times when I've gone ahead and submitted when people just say, we can't tell you before submission, usually it's a pain in the butt and they don't want the paper. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, yeah, those journals, yeah, there's friendly journals and there's non-friendly journals. And uh, sometimes you still want to get into the non-friendly journals and sometimes you can, but it definitely gives you some information when they communicate like that. You're like, okay, this is going to be a authoritarian journal shall we exactly but we'll get to this later as well but if you get formatting wrong it's one of those that will reject it because you got the formatting wrong i think yeah. if you i mean if you're really sure that they absolutely publish what you do i'm not sure you do need to contact the editor if you can see that it's absolutely your area 
Uh, there's lots of papers that are similar to yours. But particularly if you're not sure, you're not sure whether that journal will accept what you're doing, then I think it's really, really useful. And if you're really polite and you're quite concise, you don't write like a massive essay and you're quite clear about what it is you're going to be doing and you're polite, you know, most people will get back to you. And they'll be honest and say, I'm sorry, that's not enough data for what we accept. And it's quick for them to do that as well. It's longer for them to read a paper to decide if they're going to send it off for review than it is to go, yeah, sorry, that's not really our scope. Sometimes they'll suggest other journals you might send it to as well, which is useful. Totally. I've definitely had that because of some of the stuff that I've done topic wise might be suited to some quite mainstream, highly ranked journals, but methods might be not quite Mm. what they usually publish. One interesting thing I found is some editors will say, here's our sister journal. Right. <laughs> they want to increase submissions to, but doesn't quite have the ranking or the prestige. Of They're their... always trying to get things in there. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> Which is, I mean, it's kind and it's generous to take the time and make that suggestion. Mm. But also, I think this topic is a little bit of a lie, Rachel, because I think it's really how to choose journals and to not just have one. When you're looking for a journal for your papers, you wouldn't stop with one, right? Be coming up with three or four because we expect you may need to move on to the next one. So you do all that searching at once. I'm doing, I'm going for the one that I think is the best one I want, which might be slightly different reasons. It might be the highest ranked. I might be thinking, hmm, I might not manage to get into that one. Uh, But it might not be the highest ranked. It might be the one that has the audience I want or has the scope that I want. And there's one that could be higher ranked that I'm not too sure about. But yeah, there's usually a group of journals that you're looking at. And eventually you pick one because you need to write and finish an article that's specifically tailored to that. And it's difficult to tailor an article to five journals because they will have quite different scopes. Mm. Maybe if you're in a discipline where there's like a lot of similar journals, maybe you could write one that works for all. So if you fail to get into your one that you want to go for, you're usually slightly editing it to put it into the next one. Or you should anyway, you should tailor it again. So in that process, I think it's really useful to keep a document history. Like this was the original submission. And then this is what it was like after review. Just so if you have to go on to another journal, you've got that original version. So I've got the ERA's spreadsheet, which I mean, ERA's kind of not got that kind of spreadsheet in the same way. And this one's probably old, but I've got the journals, the huge list from the IRA. And then I've got one that's called my ERA of what I have. And I cut and paste the ones that I'm interested in. And it's got all the information in them. I mean, I could have put more information in there probably. But yeah, it means I can sit and look at the list sometimes. Because in reality, you're not doing this search from scratch every time. You know, you're building up through experience and through doing more and more studies in in related areas and through submitting somewhere and not having a great experience and Mm. or having a really awesome one. Sometimes I'll submit to, there's a couple of journals I have in mind that aren't as highly ranked, but they do publish stuff in my space and they're an absolute pleasure to work with. The review is always done in a way that the reviewers have been thorough, but Mm. they're not unkind you know Mm. yeah (laughs) and the the response you get back yeah exactly the response you get back is whether it's minimum or the level of changes actually reflects what the feedback Mm. says so the other thing to say about that is that if they have had a good experience of you they are also wanting to work with you again 
so mutual if you feel like you've had a good experience they probably have too um, hopefully unless you're completely um, deluded but if they've had a good experience with you they are more likely to publish your work because they trust and they know you're going to be someone who does the revisions in time and has a good style of writing and a good article so they feel that way too yeah, it's interesting. I hadn't thought yeah, of it that way. Yeah, because authors can be a pain in the butt, <laughs> I'm afraid. Oh, I <laughs> Everyone, feel like I really want to yeah. unpack that. <laughs> Some people are hard to work with. Everyone in the process can be a nightmare, and authors can also be quite difficult. <laughs> so... Yeah, I think that's a nice way to balance the conversation <laughs> of just thinking from the author's perspective. Yeah, yeah that's right. Enough. You have to start feeling like you're a customer, don't you? But yeah, no, it does go by always. One of your points is in checking the scope really clearly. You have started talking about this, but I just wanted to make sure, check in with you and see, was there anything else? Every journal's website's a little bit different. It can be a bit of a tricky part when you're first looking to find the scope. <laughs> don't you think they can be in different yeah. places and the big publishing houses have similar format across some journals but some vary so what you'll find on the home page will be some sort of introduction to the journal and probably a bunch of current articles or the current issue or something like that even if you're not subscribed to that journal or through your workplace you can't get access to those articles you should still be able to find all the information of their scope and what they expect you to do to submit an article and all those sorts of things and the scope of a journal, it's usually just about a page long. It's describing and it's very carefully worded what topically and also methodologically are the contents of this journal. What does it include? Usually more what it includes than what it doesn't include but it will say the discipline area the topic sorts of areas it might talk about other disciplines being welcome but it might also talk about the methods of research that are welcome there or that it publishes it might also talk about the types of articles so we are getting talking more about research articles because it's a dominant area of academic publishing but it's not the only one so it might also talk about uh, meta reviews or literature reviews or discussion papers or policy discussion or there might be special sections of that journal that are more commentary or reflections and things like that practice papers that's another common thing so that's all in the scope description that all encompasses scope and it can be quite broad so you can struggle to know whether you fit and also it can be broad but the actual reality can be narrower I mean that's worth noting you still should go look at what articles are getting published because it might have quite a broad sounding scope but what the editor and team want might have somehow become narrow for reasons of that scope might have existed for a long time and the editorial team might be more recent and they have ideas and they should have put that into the scope but sometimes they haven't but you should definitely take it very seriously absolutely mm. for me doing qualitative research one of the things I always check very early on is the word limit because if it's 3,000 4,000 words some of my bigger pieces of qualitative research are just it's just so hard to write such a short piece mm. so I have to think quite carefully about whether I can do that and the length mm. of words also speaks to me about the types of articles are probably more likely to be quantitative i mean that's just if you're doing qualitative so again the formatting requirements can be hard to find so they're in different parts of a journal's pages 
should be somewhere under submission or guidelines to authors or how to submit, but it varies in its language. So you're sometimes clicking around a bit to get there and it varies what they tell you. Some of them don't even have a word count. And again, sometimes I'm emailing an editor to say, could you just let me know what your word count is? Or do you have mm. one? Just to get some idea. Or I'm mm. even sometimes haven't been able to get any of that information. So I'm like uh, converting PDFs to Word to actually count how many words most of the articles are to try and guess. Some will do a page limit instead yeah. of a word count. Yeah. That's from, and may still exist, where they actually have to print. Yeah, ah, that's why that exists. So some journals still print and still have very strict guidelines on how many pages their journal can have in print. And actually, that page limit can be quite fluid because the editor is thinking about the issue as a whole. And so if mm. they've got some that are shorter and some that are longer, that's okay. Or some yeah. must, might just stick to strict. But in my experience, a lot of them, when they're working towards an issue, they might allow somebody to have more pages because they know someone else has got less. There's a submission that I'm working on with a colleague. And where we want to submit has a page restriction. The kind of stuff we're doing exists in separate places, but it hasn't been brought together like this before. The approach that I plan to take is to point this out in the cover letter to the editor. It's a place I have published before and say, hey, I know we've exceeded a little bit. I just want to bring that to your attention. It's about this much, but here's the rationale for it in bringing these different things together. Mm. You're very kindly smiling and nodding right now, but what is your reaction to that as an editor? I think it's absolutely worth doing. And when you've got a justification for it, the worst is when someone does it and uh, hasn't said anything and hopes no one will notice. <laughs> just a little bit cheeky i'll hopefully get away with this and if they're a professor they're like i'll definitely get away with this <laughs> it's much better to be upfront and to say that yeah absolutely and then different editors will respond differently some will say no you can't do that some will say oh okay that's reasonable yeah a lot mm -hmm. of people will say yes absolutely a lot of these situations it's good to ask and to have a good clear like you said rationale i think makes a big mm -hmm. difference yeah absolutely so interesting how in psychology we're looping back to the social aspects of, hey, maybe just have open communication and ask or explain what yeah. you're doing. <laughs> I mean, the system doesn't look as though you can because it's very technology based now and it's disconnected from people. A lot of journals, you submit your article to a system, you get an automatic system message. Sometimes it's difficult to find an editor's email address. There's almost always an editor's email address to ask them questions. So it seems as though it's a very abstract system. But yeah, there is a person. It's quite hard to visualize the fact that they're all people, everybody's people <laughs> at working because it is so electronic now. And it's very, um, you know, cause blind review and stuff like that. It's very removed and disconnected. But yeah, always it's good to ask, definitely. So the formatting requirements, you should check really, really carefully. Check you can meet them, check you understand them, check you have a copy of them, you're going to need them. Check you have checked all pages of the website that you have understood everything that they say. And they vary, unfortunately. Every single one I find is very different. Some of them have a very strict description of format some don't some you've got to go to another website so sage i think i always find has their own i find that hard because some journals say who are sage direct you to it and some don't some have their yeah. own i still get very confused about which formatting 
this journal is asking me to do. So I still have to look really carefully at what they're asking because it's really important to get the formatting perfect on your article. It's one of the things that really helps you when you submit Mm. it. With some bigger publishing houses, you go through content review with the reviewer and the editor to get Mm. accepted. And then it goes to a copy editor. Mm. It's not content specific. And it is. It's a really quick turnaround where you don't have long in terms of time frame to get on top Mm. of it. And probably that is the least positive kind of communication I've had in publishing is with the copy editor end because they're really trying to smash it out quickly and move on to the next thing. And the systems for tracking and changing, formatting and editing at that point are often really tricky as well. So just getting it as close as possible before submission. If it's the kind of electronic system where you've got to copy and paste into a box every Uh section oh my gosh I've had some where I could just throw the computer across the room by the end of it where you've got to put your references in a different field and it mucks it up and yeah some of those electronics yeah so get it get it as right as you can first time yeah and I often also think about the differences in different forms of writing even that look very similar and look to most people the same So an honours dissertation is often a bit longer than a journal article, but it's the sort of traditional looking journal article of introduction, methods, results and discussion. And yet it's so different in lots of ways. What you need to be doing to show, and it doesn't have to just be research that we talk about here, but you have to be very, very clear to a reader who's reading it why what you are writing matters. And that's different to when something's being marked in any form. So lots of people have done something before where they've been marked and now they're writing something where it's being read. And when it's being marked, you're showing that you understand and you're showing that you're capable and competent. So you're writing more about theory, for example. But in a journal article, you are trying to show why what you are saying is important for that person to read or valuable. Not necessarily because it's new or because it's, you know, with stats, because it's a positive result. It might be, you know, I know that's a big problem in stats that there's too much, nothing gets published that's a negative result. That shouldn't be the case. Whatever you're showing has value. And a journal won't be publishing it if it doesn't, I hope. (laughs) Although probably you can somewhere (laughs) find something that's of less value. But yeah, you're striving to show that something has value. And that means it's punchier in a way. That's why articles are shorter than most marked pieces of writing. It's very to the point. It's very succinct. So your introduction, its whole purpose is to give enough background for you to get to whatever point you're making, which in research is a research question or aims. And in a discussion paper, you know, there's sort of more literature in it. But your background in a research paper is there in its entirety to get to the point and for Mm -hmm. the reader to understand that point and feel that that point is justified. So you might need to describe Australian government context or something like that if it's an international journal so that they understand why the aims are valuable. It needs to have really clear justification for those aims. So justification sections in something that's marked might be a bit longer and a bit vaguer. And a marker will be like, okay, because it's not a massive part of the mark. But for a paper, it's almost so important. And it's got to be very succinct, very short. But the justification for the aims of what was done are really important. So it really has to be very clear to the reader. And then what you did, if it's research, again, has to be very succinct, 
very edited down, much shorter, because you're not showing that you were competent and good at what you do and that you're okay to pass, but you're actually just giving them enough information that they understand the findings and that they're valuable. If it's a methodology paper, of course, you're spending way longer on describing what happened during methods or what occurs in the process of doing a piece of particular method. But if you're showing results, it's quite pared down. And then results, again, it needs to show what's important. So you're always thinking about the reader and discussion. What is the impact of this? What has this achieved? What does this say? Trying to persuade someone that this has value. And that style of writing is something that academics are working towards their whole career learning how to do. Again, that inequality exists in terms of it's really difficult for writers who are not constantly working in academia to do that. Reading mm. articles that are out there, in that journal especially, and articles that you think are well-written and have a similar format to what you need to write, perhaps even have a similar topic. And obviously you're not plagiarising them, but learning from that writing and seeing that writing and what it does and how it does things effectively and consciously thinking about how things are written is one way to try to aim for that. It's treated as though it's the best way to write, and I'm really critical of that, but it's a very, very particular way to write. You can definitely get creative within that. I mean, I think that actually is some of the best writing where you suddenly start to talk about your reflexivity and reflections as a researcher and you're actually using the first person and that's supposedly transgressive but comes across fantastically and uh, that takes mm. you know a bit of confidence but I don't think everyone has to write the same way I think creativity in writing actually comes across better because lots of people do write the same way I think that focus that you placed on shifting work that you've created for submission for a thesis or something mm. or a dissertation is is really important and in that process you definitely create more content than you would put in an article submission but also those of us who submitted theses some time ago we still do that extra writing and thinking that might not necessarily end up in a paper I'm thinking of so I've published a series of systematic lit reviews and I wouldn't put the method in those anymore you kind of suss mm. out what an editor wants, but I would say if I'm publishing something similar to what I've done before, I would say here are the key things that I've done, like very brief, for a full mm. version, see here. Yeah. And usually yeah. editors or journals that I've worked with have liked that because it keeps the word count yeah. down. Or you might be working on a topic where a review paper that I did a couple of years ago was for a journal where the audience would know these various psychological disorders that I was looking at. But in developing my own thinking, I wrote out the descriptions of these various disorders and why I was looking at them, how they were similar or different. It doesn't end up in the paper, but I would always put this stuff in a cover letter. You know, we've got content that could be slipped straight in if you want more context around disorders right. or definitions. Or we've got a method section that we can easily incorporate. So if you think you're going to cut corners like that, it can be good. Or try to be concise, thinking about the audience or what an editor might like. It can be useful to put that yeah. in a cover letter. You've definitely always got that material ready to go if a reviewer asks for it mm. too. You're like, yep, got that. Mm. <laughs> it's easy to do. Yeah, and then an editor's not thinking, oh, geez, that might take a really long time. This is major revisions. So you're like, I got you. I already have this written. He's <laughs> one I prepared earlier. <laughs> and it's a good point that it's also valuable to make that journals on the whole are a space where a lot of shorthand is used linguistically and jargon, we'd probably call that. So you're often saying that you did something in a really concise way and all the readers that are reading it know exactly what you mean. 
and mm. that is again excluding kind of way in which they work but if you're complying with that you are using the kind of shorthand that people use so a good example would be for qualitative analysis in marked work somebody would spend lots of time describing exactly how they did analysis like a page so that they can show how competent they are and that it'll get marked positively in a journal article you just cite the place where it tells you how to do that analysis you just it's one sentence it's no more you don't do anything else everybody knows what that method is if you if you want to say something valuable again is it valuable does it add if you want to say something useful about got a student right now who's combined Foucauldian analysis with narrative analysis and it's really innovative and they'll probably write a methodology paper on that which obviously would be a longer thing and they'll probably be able to refer back to it but they probably would need a little bit more explanation to the reader about what they did and how they did it but it's really yeah. short and then going the other way though I've seen you look at quantitative papers where people state what measures they've used and you're like um do you want to say why you've used those measures like there's no justification at all so you do have to show why something's important and you can't just say i use this measure this measure this measure you have to say why i thought that was so yeah i get really frustrated when i see you know my nine to five job is rapidly reviewing evidence-based literature to provide recommendations for practitioners and when i see people say this is the measure that they've used but they don't tell you what they're trying to operationally define by using that measure this is a measure of this it just really frustrates me because then i distrust everything else in the paper yeah so make sure you don't leave out vital information but there's a lot of shorthand yeah and as i said if that's really difficult which can be absolutely and it's a learning curve for sure it's taken me lots of time to do that then looking at how other people write i mean the other things to say about learning how to write that way that's so particular I think the two things that are most valuable in increasing your knowledge and your ability in that writing might be a bit excluding for some people, but one is any forms of marking that you can do. And that depends on who listeners are. But again, it's not journal work, but it just develops my skills in writing by looking at and explaining and giving feedback on how to write helps me write. It's Mm. valuable to me as much as it is to anybody else. And the other one that obviously is very similar is doing reviews. Mm. So being a reviewer and journals are, again, you would think that you couldn't ask a journal to be a reviewer, but they are so desperate for reviewers all the time, constantly, 24-7. They'll probably send you an article that day. (laughs) So, (laughs) I mean, you've sort of got to tell them that you've got some skills for it. People do a good job in reviewing and there's, there's lots of resources out there which you can freely get through publishing houses like Sage, which show you good ways to review and you can just google those but actually doing reviews of papers again really helps with your writing if you have any sort of Mm. supervisor who might be an academic supervisor you can do them together at first lots of journals now allow supervisors to do the review with somebody and they let them know that that's what they're doing Mm. if it's the first time or first few times so i think reviewing articles is also a great way to develop your skills any process or skill that you're trying to develop, trying to make it explicit why you enjoy reading something or why something makes sense to you yeah. being presented in a certain way yeah. is going to help you in creating your own content. Yeah. Absolutely. Something looks good or you realize something's missing. You're like, oh yeah, that does need to be clearer. You would see that easier in your own work. 
when you were saying methods are condensed down to one sentence, I chuckled in my head because in the, the qual stuff that I read is often me and however many tens of thousands of people have cited this paper is thematic analysis, Braun and Clark. Braun and Clark. <laughs> I mean, that's a whole other podcast where I could talk about how I'm so frustrated that journals don't write more. And I want longer. And I want articles to say something. Yeah, I guess we could just put one massive disclaimer there is that if you say you're doing thematic analysis, at the very least, please say from which epistemology. <laughs> like, you haven't just done thematic analysis, you've done it from a phenomenological perspective or a positive perspective or a social constructionist perspective. Yeah. If you're saying that I'm assuming it's positivist because you haven't even thought about it. Yeah. Uh... I know, so that's a whole other podcast. What I wish did go into journal articles. <laughs> and that's for absolute clarity, so there's no mistaken understanding here. Braun and Clark's work is great and actually very detailed methodological yeah. work. The issue we raise here is just thinking that's enough in your own paper to have one sentence. Thematic analysis oh, and Braun oh, and there's Clark. there's lots of detail in, in, in Braun and Clark's yeah. work. They've got books and books, you know, but yeah, no, everyone just says thematic analysis. <laughs> uh, amazing. What about another point we have here is get colleagues support and yeah. feedback. Some people have supervisors and should be getting good support and feedback, but that's often absolutely not the case. So it's really valuable to have people who will read your work for you or people who you can talk to and bounce off the mm. idea and say you're struggling or, or just to get advice all the way through, really. Anyone who is going through it as a peer at the same level would be a great peer to discuss. You know, you and I have discussed, uh, that's why we're doing this podcast over the year, kind of what do we do with this horrendous review mm -hmm. or all sorts of things. So discussing the whole process through with somebody is just very valuable and doing it in isolation is not as useful. Uh, and then someone more senior as a mentor is also really valuable to have because they've got sort of more experience and they can say... Um, you should argue back to the editor or, you know, things you might not have thought you could do. When you've written something, having someone read it, it's like a pre-review mm. would be very, very valuable. And you want to find people that might be closer to the audience or who might be closer to the reviewers, I suppose. And I think there's been multiple times you and I have sat with reviewers' feedback and because you just get it in text, I sometimes would read a response and think, oh, I, I guess this is how I need to respond to it. And then hearing your perspective of, oh, actually, I think what they mean yeah, is this. Yeah, it's easy to misread things or to, there's ambiguity. Yeah. Well, I, I mean, the other thing to say about that, of course, is that often you are writing with more than mm. one person. So that's a different thing as well, because I suppose that's all the way through so far. I've kind of spoke as though someone's writing on their own, but you're often writing in a team. And hopefully that's a supportive experience. I think writing as a group is, a, I don't know, I feel like that'd be a whole podcast on its own. It's really challenging and different every time. Mm. And inevitably what happens is some people do more of the work or you wish you hadn't brought somebody on because they're not doing any of the work, or there's all sorts of tensions. But I guess those tensions are quite similar to lots of other work. You have similar tensions in groups. True. And uh, people I write really well with, I really value. Mm. So you're often doing it together. Before you submit, it's proofread. Yeah. But getting the format and the proofreading right. Yeah. And I, yeah. for me, I need to print it and to be away from my computer to see what it looks like because you have read it so you think you've read it so many times by mm. that point 
But there's something about holding Mm. the printed words that for me really helps getting a red pen or a colored pen and working through it. Once it's correctly formatted as well, it sort of looks a bit more finished, Mm. not got notes all over the place and a bit of time as well, like any writing couple of days away from it you come back you see things a bit differently as much as you can i got some feedback from someone on a piece that i was writing or submitted last week for review internally at work because we have you know executive research directors and various levels of review and Mm. a very impressive researcher pointed out a typo of something that had gone through many layers before it had gotten to them. I just felt really embarrassed, but it made me have a flashback to one of the first things that I had written and sent to you for review when I was doing my PhD. (laughs) And you were like, the feedback that you put in it was, I was trying to say this is high stakes for journalists, but I had written (laughs) S-T-E-A-K-S. And your comment was like, lol, stakes. Yeah, just lol. <laughs> it's very funny because yeah. that has stuck with me. It's often, yeah, funny spelling. <laughs> yeah, I remember that too. I remember thinking, <laughs> that's really funny. <laughs> yeah, you don't get enough funny points when you're like doing academic writing. There's not enough fun in it. <laughs> so I should remember that one, and it's years ago. So good. <laughs> having your formatting perfect and your proofreading perfect again it's an unequal situation because it's more challenging to get all that done uh, if english is not your first language but getting it as good as it can be i mean i suppose chat gpt can do it for you these days but it makes a difference and if you have reviewers who are less kind than we would like them to be it makes a big difference the less kinder the reviewer the bigger Mm. the difference the any errors left i mean uh, there'll be some error in any article until it's final copy reading stage but yeah you want to get it as well as possible get the formatting exactly how they said they wanted it the referencing especially if you're not an academic you would think that formatting of references looks ridiculously particular but it is how it has to be and if you're an academic and you're having to do a different one that you're not used to that you're doing harvard method or something it's a right pain to try and do but you've got to get it Mm. right i find more often people who are more senior submit less finished stuff (laughs) professors like professors are like there you go You'll sort the references out. Yeah, you're welcome. (laughs) They probably get away with it too because people do want them. But yeah, you should make sure it's because then there's no room for anyone to get because just like marked work again, a reviewer is getting a bit irked, especially if they're not kind. Mm. So don't give them a reason to be irked. There are some journals I have heard the editors say in a public forum that if they have any article that has the incorrect format when it's submitted, it's rejected immediately. So that exists. And it's particularly journals who have a very high number of papers submitted to them, so they can afford to do that. Decrease the distraction for them to focus on the content and the Mm. cool story that you're trying to tell and why it's important. Mm. Don't provide any avoidable distractions. Yeah, that's right. And then you... um, go back to the journal's webpage and try and figure out what the hell they mean when they're telling you to submit <laughs> because every journal's different and they've got some kind of crazy electronic system it is a really beautiful experience when you go to submit something and you just have to email it to the journal that's like <laughs> chef kiss because <laughs> these yeah, systems are rough some of those yeah. systems are insane aren't they 
Yeah, you've perfectly formatted your paper and now the system is asking you in a field to put all the authors and then put all the affiliations and then put the abstracts and then put the title. You're like, I've done that in the article. And then they also want you to upload the article. It's a mystery to me. Yeah, and in that process, because you don't see the next step in the submission portal until you get to it. So Mm. I do this and I suggest people I'm working with who haven't published before do this of upload some blank documents, see what they want from you. You kind of, when Mm. you're doing it, get really excited like, oh, I'm done, I've written my paper. Oh, no. (laughs) That you're just beginning. Because you feel like you're done, and then three hours later, you want to tell somebody. Yeah, that's a good idea if you can go backwards and put the blank papers on it. Um, because lots of journals will now ask for you to suggest reviewers and have specific mm. information that you would need for them or, you know, just having the ORCID ID for co-authors and stuff like that. It's um can be a bit more of a fiddly process than yes, you might expect. Yes, it can expect. be a bit fiddly. Yeah, let's be kind and call it that. So be aware that that's going to happen <laughs> when you feel like you're done. And then it's going to reviewers yeah. or you hope it's going to reviewers. They'll let you know. They should let you know. If you don't hear anything, if you, if you hear nothing, do email them. <laughs> after about two weeks if you haven't heard confirmation that they received your paper send them an email so you should get confirmation often it comes through automatically on those systems like scholar one so you should get confirmation that mm. they've received it and that it's going to reviewers and you don't get to find out rightly or wrongly again we can we did debate that a little bit last time but you don't get to find out at all who it's going to uh, usually it's two people on average they usually have some connection to the journal you'll find with some journals that as soon as you submit you get asked to do a review so that's how you can be connected <laughs> to the journal and then um, the journal itself is then struggling to get those reviews back from those reviewers so it can take a while and that can seem odd because you're not seeing any of that process happen and sometimes they'll let you know how that's going but often you'll hear nothing at all sometimes it's not the case that nothing's happening it's some editorial assistant or editorial member or the editor saying hey reviewer one have you finished that yet hey reviewer one have you finished that yet that you were going to get that to me two weeks ago or three weeks ago it's been four weeks now occasionally a reviewer says they're going to do it drops out after like four weeks of you trying to hassle them so then you've got to go and get a new reviewer so as much as I can talk about how infuriated I get with journals it's probably worth noting or knowing that it's a struggle in in Mm. the background that you're not seeing to get those reviews that's probably worth communicating that especially increasingly you know how overworked everybody everywhere is it's hard to get reviews back and then the reviews come to the editor or somebody so the editorial they might have a a team of 10 sub-editors or editorial assistants or something who might be waiting to get those back and hopefully somebody has a good look at those but it varies how much somebody reviews the review before it goes back to the author. Because if you've carefully reviewed them, some things might they might disagree with. And so a in-depth process is that whoever is in the editorial team looks at those reviews and then feels confident about them or has some alterations and compiles a response to the author to say these are the reviews they recommended major changes actually this seems like more minor or anything that's kind of a disagreement or the the two have disagreed the least amount of kind of review of those reviews is that they come back no one looks at them and they automatically go out to the authors 
I don't know mm. how often that happens. I only suspect that happens. I think it's really common that people have a quick look and send it back. That's worth knowing because if you massively disagree with what comes back, it's possible that the journal does too. But it does vary how much those reviews have been calibrated, if you like, before they go to you. And with some of the very busy journals who have a very electronic system, I think it's possible that reviews go back automatically almost without too much scrutiny. So there's a variation there, but you receive these reviews back. Then you give it three days to have a bit of a tantrum. <laughs> Correct. You have an emotional reaction and uh, you don't do anything about it for a while. Yeah, the first reaction I usually have is, no, why? Like you've not gotten it. But then three days later, oh yeah, no, I can do that. Oh no, I see the misunderstanding. Yeah. Oh yeah, I wasn't clear in that part. I can yeah, that improve was a good that. point actually. Yeah, yeah. That is missing. Yeah, you swing from, how can you possibly think that? You're so wrong to, oh no. It's like being a teenager to being like this with your parents. So yeah, I've often had that. So they can say that they think it should be rejected outright. So even at that point of review, it could have been fully rejected and the editor's telling you that it's been rejected. It can be a request to fully resubmit with major, major revisions or a kind of accepted with major revisions. Probably not saying it's accepted, but we want to see some major revisions. Like, I don't yeah. know, that's a gray area, I guess, between those two. Or the idea that it's got minor revisions. And sometimes they'll say, we are accepting this paper, but we want these minor revisions. Yeah. Or they might say, we want to see these minor revisions done. And at some point, eventually, what you're aiming for is them saying it's accepted. Sometimes you have to do more than one round of revisions. Every article I've written, even for the same journal, has been a different story. Mm. They vary so much because there's so much variation there. You know, who the reviewers are going to be, who the editor selects the reviewers to be, who the reviewers are, what mood they're in that day, how busy they are, what expertise they have to review that paper, and then how your relationship afterwards goes with the editor every single time it's been different so you're not sure what you're going to get but often even with major revisions you're working towards having a paper that gets submitted but occasionally also at that point you and I probably both have withdrawn a paper because it feels as though what's being expected by not just the reviewers but when asking the editors is beyond what you wish to make of your paper and you think this is going to warp it into something it's not and I need to, to actually go somewhere else yeah. and that's a shame but that happens too. I remember writing something post-conference for a special issue that was about the conference, but they were full papers. And it was an article that was about three different projects. So they're meant to be overviews, and it was for a fairly national psychology journal, not Australian, not US either. It had kind of stricter guidelines usually, but this was a special issue from a community conference so the word count was quite small and there were these three different projects that were being described obviously there wasn't room to put too much in and it was more about a reflection of the methodology actually of the three projects and what kind of commonalities there were and the reviewers came back with so much expectation that wasn't possible in the word count mm -hmm. and it seemed as well like the reviewers were not in that field like it was a really awkward situation and we went to the guest editors and said they wanted the results of every project, for example, and this wasn't a results paper. And they weren't budging. They didn't agree. They were like, no, you've got to follow what the reviewers say. And we're like, well, we're really, really sorry. It was well outside what was asked in the special issue as well. So it was a really odd situation. So we had to withdraw it, which was a real shame. 
it went into a better journal. It was a great ending, actually. It ended up being a paper as we were really happy with, but went to a better journal. So again, every story is so different. At the time, that felt like that was a nightmare. And in the end, it was worked out. Mm. But yeah, even when a review is very constructive and very useful, my often reaction is to be annoyed about it. But definitely give myself time because often the value of a good review is that it has given you the opportunity to have a peer who doesn't have any vested interest in telling you it's great or inside knowledge about the project. So they might take things for granted, which a supervisor will do too, mm. you know, or a colleague writing with you will take things for granted. Someone that's coming to it cold and is able to show you how to make that paper better mm. than it was mm. and stronger. And you come out with a stronger paper. Totally. It's prospectively a very valuable experience and that's how it should be and is often I've often had really valuable reviews mm. but what do we do when it's we feel like it's not valuable yeah one of the first papers that I wrote I had a reviewer who was clearly someone whose work I was critiquing and the feedback that they gave wasn't really feedback it was kind of scathing and inappropriate and so we went back <laughs> to the editor I think in that instance the editor probably hadn't read it that well before yeah. it came back to That's us what I think and happened. I was working with someone who was quite senior in the field and they gave me the confidence to push back and say, oh, actually, maybe we think we might know who the reviewer is. And, you know, the comments aren't really constructive. So here's the parts of this that we propose we address and here's the parts we'll pretend weren't sent through. Don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. Just because there's negative aspects or things you don't agree with, looking for what are the gems in there, but also feeling like you can push back about certain things. The stuff that I tend to publish outside of work now, I feel really confident in it. And if I get something back that I don't agree with, I'll just make a case really respectfully mm. of why. Because I'm thinking maybe you don't have the context. You've got maybe working in a different space that's related. But in this context, here's what's important and making that case. And I've found that that works quite well. But everything is different. Yeah. <laughs> it's worth discussing it with colleagues. Again, like you said, get colleagues support and feedback. It's a really valuable point at which to discuss things because it's difficult to trust yourself about what to do and it's great to get some other ideas about what you might do if you feel that what's being suggested is unfair or doesn't work in some way but yeah often don't be afraid to talk back a little bit I mean you have to be so polite and so respectful and I think that's a good idea to say I'm really happy with all of this stuff there's just this thing and I'm not sure mm. what to do about that in fact one of the first papers I ever wrote and it was for a journal I really admired and again I don't feel like the editor had closely read the review it's a years ago now so I'm probably over exaggerating what it was like but it was a, a methodology <laughs> paper on, on like quite different qualitative research not just regular qualitative research but it was kind of out there and the reviewer was asking why I wasn't arguing about the validity and reliability and things like that big oh, red okay. flags that the reviewer didn't have expertise to review you know qualitative methodology I was really worried but I had to go back to the editor and say look these points that the reviewer said I don't know how I did it at the time because I would have been very unconfident but these points that have been raised and said that I haven't done don't work for qualitative research I'm not sure what to do with these and the editor was very polite and very kind and was like yeah I agree you don't they, they were on my side I agree you don't have to do this you should always just do what you think is most reasonable. You shouldn't make a shift in your writing just for the reviewer where you think it alters 
negatively the paper i mean occasionally you're going okay fine i can put that in i don't think it's that valuable but it's also doesn't massively alter it or detract from it you know you think i'll do that because it's something i've done so you should just do what you think is best really i mean the other space where you talk back i mean that's a big way to talk back is to go back to the editor and have a big problem but i mean of course the other thing is we should mention that when you're doing revisions one of the things you do is a separate document that is your response to the reviewers and what you create is a table which is sort of uh, numbered in one column for reviewer one to whoever and then the next column is a row for each point that the reviewer has made those might be quite hard to separate out because the reviewer might have waffled on and <laughs> mentioned three points hidden in a paragraph or Mm. or make some statements and you're like does this need a response is it a question or is it a statement so you struggle a bit sometimes with the clarity but the point you think are things they want you to review and then the third column is what you have done to respond mm. and usually in any set of revisions there are maybe at least one where i'm saying again oozing respect language um but i really value this comment but this would take so much to explain and it's outside of the scope of the paper. So I'm proposing not to do this. If you've got good mm. justification, so that's a, a small way of arguing back, really respectfully, just making a, a logical, non-emotional as well, you know, really dispassionate, logical reasoning as to why that's not something you think you should do. For those of you at home, that's all for today. Show notes for the episode can be found at www.psychattack.com. If you've enjoyed listening to Psych Attack, please rate it on your favorite podcast platform and share this episode to help other people find the show. If you have questions or feedback, you can reach out on Twitter at Psych Attack Cast. Thanks for listening and we'll catch up with you again next time. Psych Attack.